0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
1: This podcast is a Royfield brown production. Find others on iTunes.
2: All right. Yeah, I no, no. Ladies and gentlemen,
0: please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem...
2: means Brexit. My administration has
0: accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country.
2: Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of Atlantic from the perspective of the other. Normally, I have the dynamic trio with me. That means that we're a quartet. Every now and then, I like to delve deep into a topic. So I get, not that I get an expert, but an expert comes onto the show. We go into the weeds, so to speak. And today we have Susan Stokes, who's a professor of political science at the University of Chicago. Professor, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic.
1: My pleasure. Thank you. As is the case across the country, this protest comes in the wake of
2: George Floyd's death, a black man who died while in police custody in Minneapolis. We're losing black lives constantly to police brutality and racism, constantly. It's not one incident, it's not two incidents, it's constant and we're exhausted. We're
0: trying to be as peaceful as we can, but we're tired. We're tired of seeing our black brothers and
2: sisters being killed senselessly. This group is demanding justice, but not just for George Floyd. We live in a very turbulent time, and it's very easy to look at 2020 and to say with the Black Lives Matter protests that this is the year to, to kind of end all years. But specifically looking at street protest, really we've been living through a decade and a half of unprecedented protests around the world, haven't we? Why is that? You're absolutely
1: right. It's fascinating. I um, wrote a, a, an article in the Washington Quarterly uh, that came out in the very beginning of this year, in January, with a co-author saying, looking back at 2019, that was the year of the protests. There were you know, all over the globe, lots of different causes, lots of different dynamics, but it was remarkable the degree to which the Middle East, the United States, Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, Latin America, really all parts of the globe were having crescendos of pro street protests, uh, and we had a number of explanations for why that was true. One of them in the sort of in the background is kind of some disappointment with the with the performance of democracy growing income and wealth inequalities in many parts of the world um, and then some more proximate causes so um, in some parts of the world uh, increased economic hardship or or lasting economic hardship failure to kind of emerge completely from uh the financial crisis which of course now seems decades ago more than decades ago um and also there are some interesting changes in technology the sort of the digital revolution has been a cause of rising street demonstrations. So, um, you know, social media, cell phones, all of that goes into the mix of making it easier to bring people out, um, easier to organize protests. So we thought all of those things were involved. And then all of a sudden we got to 2020 and everything crashed to to a halt because of the pandemic initially.
2: Interestingly, you mentioned uh, the role of new media Specifically, when the Arab Spring started in approximately 2011, people said, this is great, this is new media, this is social media, which is helping to topple totalitarian regimes. But history, at least recent history, has proven to us that those repressive regimes can use that media against their citizens, hasn't it?
1: You're absolutely right. And I would just say that Every sort of revolution in communications that we've had in in, in world history has um, become a kind of um, a tool that both sides or many sides use to battle one another. So it shouldn't surprise us that social media and um, and you know electronic communications um, kind of serve protesters, serve civil society also serve governments including authoritarian governments so we've seen um, you know the Chinese government become very adept at kind of controlling and, um, and shaping the way that uh, the way that social media in, in that country um, does not really lead to uh, very widespread protests but yes there it, I think one of the places we see that we've seen this the most clearly is in Egypt where um, the uh, you know digital ca- digital um, media social media, and cell phones all made a huge difference in mobilizing very surprising social movements but were also used so electronic surveillance and so forth was also used by the state um to to pull back on those things and also was used by um by forces that were you know opposed to the elected uh government of of uh, of morsi and and that was part of the uh, you know, was somewhat of the background behind the uh, the the coup against the democratic regime. So, yes, there's no nobody permanently owns these new uh, media means of communication. They're always battlefields.
2: Economic inequality, systematic racism, police brutality. Let's say the brutality uh, of the state, the physical brutality of the state, has always had a disproportionate effect on stoking street protest and revolution. But taking out modern means of media, social media, cell phones, is there another crucial way of which, let's say, the anti-Iraq protests in the United Kingdom, which one million people marched during the Iraq war, through to the Arab Spring, Black Lives Matters, is there any quantitative difference with those uh, protests than, let's say, the 1960s March for Civil Rights, or 1848 in europe or the french revolution so let's put completely technology to one side are there any other quantitative differences where we can say these protests are different today
1: well there are some differences and i think it's a great question so set aside these these uh the 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 digital revolution what what might be different uh, there are some differences, and I think they reflect differences in the populations, in, in, in us as, as, as civil as members of civil society. On the whole, we are better educated, obviously more literate, especially, you know, if you make comparisons uh, uh, back to, as you said, the French Revolution, more literate, more aware of the sort of um, elite world around us, better means of communication, including tra- just transport, you know, getting around. One of the changes that we see is a much more urban base to uh, to protest movements. Um, I think that, on the other hand, that there are some really strong continuities. There are some ingredients to, you know, why people rise up when they rise up that are pretty consistent over time. So we, you know, economic uh, inequality, um, racism, Injustices are really important. So a sense that not necessarily I, but some group out there with whom I empath- em- empathize is being treated unfairly and cruelly. That's a that's a stimulus for um, for mobilization. And it and it was during the French Revolution, and it was you know earlier than that, and it and it continues to be today.
2: Please tell me if I'm wrong here, but one of the differences that I really discern with the Black Lives Matters protests, which are happening right now throughout america is that there are many people marching of which um they don't have a direct instance of this level of of that type of oppression i.e there's a whole load of white folks there marching when i think back to let's say the french revolution and what i've read about it um it was the uh the people without culottes, the sans culottes, who were, you know, they they didn't have bread and they were marching for bread and the, they directly were against the aristocrats and the middle class felt that they didn't have political representation in the state, so they sided with them. So in that way, the current Black Lives Matters movement does seem very different to me because you have this multi-ethnic set of protesters and saying just to repeat the point of which some of them are empathizing with the cause but aren't necessarily suffering from it. Would I be right?
1: You know there have always been uh members of the intelligentsia who have been revolutionaries obviously in the french revolution that was true including in the leadership of revolutions um, you know if we look to the the americas the the cuban revolution you know, that was actually led by highly educated people who didn't necessarily come from poor backgrounds. So I think that there, that is true, certainly at the level of leadership. On the other hand, that is, there has always been a kind of mix of people, including some who whose own kind of economic interests in a very direct way or, or safety from state repression in a very direct way was, was not as, as, as directly implicated. But I do think you're absolutely right that one of the hallmarks of the current Black Lives Matter protests in the United States is that they are more multi multi racial, multi ethnic than even the civil rights movement here in the 1960s, which was which which had um, you know many so called allies very much involved. So the Freedom Summer um, students and so forth; those were white students who came down from from the north. the The current movements have been quite. Uh, multiracial and multi-ethnic and you know I think that if you watch the video of George floyd being murdered which to be honest I have not been able to bring myself to do but I know what's in it the offense against any kind of humanity and any kind of civility or fairness it's so extreme that I think that did mobilize a lot of a lot of people a lot of whites a lot of you know probably more educated more middle class even more affluent people of course, that can bring problems of its own and i and I know that some of the African American activist leaders of the movement have been concerned about a, a kind of you know takeover or or in the sense that that other white viewers out there, bystanders, if you will, are sort of more moved when they see a bunch of white you know moms in in the the vanguard of the Portland protest, for example um and feel that that's a limit to empathy that that we'd like to overcome
2: you've moved. Moving- my thought process on in a really interesting direction because obviously what you've done specifically to look at protest but also civil protest is an adjunct to getting political change of which the way which we are told in a western democracy in a liberal western democracy we're told yes you can protest never violently but ultimately it's all about the ballot box the, the example that you used of white liberal mums is a really interesting one, because if we specifically look at the supposed coalition of the Republican Party historically, it was about suburban america wasn 't it and suburban mothers and Donald Trump has specifically made an appeal in the last month or so to remind suburban America and suburban mothers that poor people coming into neighbourhoods is not a good thing and poor means black or at least poor means non-white anyway. How have we seen the traditional voting patterns of the last 40 years since the start of the Reagan era maybe change and is that really what we're seeing on the streets of Portland that suburbia isn't necessarily in lockstep with the Republican Party and you, can, and you can see it manifest there on, on the streets of Portland. So how are the different communities, the different ethnicities, the different socioeconomic groups of America, how has their alignment maybe changed since uh, the start of this new liberal um, era, which started with the uh, election of Reagan?
1: It, it's such a fascinating question. Let me take the suburbia part of it first, and then I'll go to the voting part of it. Um, the suburbs have changed in the United States. They are... Um, on the whole, more uh, more ethnically diverse. Or, you know, it's even the case, this being a very segregated, residentially segregated country still, there are many African-Americans who live in suburbs that are predominantly African-American. There are many Latinos who have moved to suburbs and there are suburbs that are, that are racially much more mixed. And obviously suburbia is not one thing in terms of economic status. There are um, lower middle class, Suburbs there are working class suburbs there are very affluent suburbs, and so suburbia doesn't, in a sense, the it doesn't push the same button. So this is where I sometimes I think Donald Trump is a little bit sort of frozen in an earlier period because there was a day when suburbia meant white flight. It meant uh, white families that had left the cities in search of, you know, better schools and probably many of them in search of, um, you know, less crime, meaning as, as a kind of uh, a code for um, less racial integration. Um, and, uh, and that's quite different now. So, for example, I live in Chicago and we, in the surrounding suburban areas, we have um, many southern suburbs which are you know, predominantly African-American. And that Shift to the suburbs began several decades ago. That move of the African Americans to the suburbs began several decades ago, when, um, in part, is a is the same for the same kinds of reasons, same kind of dynamics that earlier ethnic groups have moved to the suburbs. Um, and that said, the the more working class and more racially integrated suburbs also suffered a great deal during the um, the Great Recession um, after 2008, 2009. So suburbia is just a much more complex thing then seems to trip off the tongue of, of our president. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why the strategy has not been hugely, that is, the, 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 the Trump campaign's strategy of trying to pit suburban America against the Democratic Party um, with all kinds of tropes having to do with race and crime and so forth, has not really worked all that well. So really, the base of, the, um, of, the, of Trump is less suburban, although it is that as well. And there are quite affluent people who are, uh, who are Trump supporters. Um, but it's really more of a, of a semi-rural or, or exurban kind of um, versus urban divide. Um, so he has those folks more or less firmly in his base, obviously, with great regional variation and so forth. Um, and the, 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 the sort of old sub- suburbs versus city kind of um, divide is, just doesn't work the same way. Now, let me turn to your question about voting patterns. It's also fascinating. Um, you know, the, the the U.S. has gone through enormous changes in the nature of our party system. And um, Donald Trump and his 2016 electoral coalition is just sort of the culmination of that change. So we've had a steady process of polarization of the two parties, of the Democrats and the Republicans, really beginning with the Republicans and to some degree going back to, um, the Newt Gingrich period in the 1990s, but really even before that, where the as a kind of slow fallout in some ways of the Civil Rights Act and the loss of the Democratic Party's support in the South, there's been a kind of um, a, a kind of homogenization of the party. So that's true regionally. So um, the the Republican Party is much stronger in the South and in parts of the West. The Democrats, much and parts of the the Midwest, um, the Democratic Party very strong on the on the West Coast, uh, very strong in the Northeast. The kind of um, moderate northeastern Republican is uh, vanished; it's gone the way of the dodo bird. You know, really, almost doesn't exist any longer. So you have congressional districts and to some degree states that are kind of either red or blue, and there's not much chance for the other party to win, and then there are many, many that are, are, you know, purple as we call them, and and could go either way. But that, but that has sort of both been a product of and further fed a kind of ideological polarization of the parties in, at the leadership level. So um, what that means in terms of voting patterns is that um, we have a f- fairly Um, sort of, uh, you know, the the electorate kind of maps onto that polarized system. So we have um, pretty unshakable um, Democratic Party, which is quite a coalition again, still much more of a coalition. African Americans vote heavily Democratic, uh, Jewish Americans um, to some, some of the white, the, the Latino population, a little bit more up for grabs, but leans Democratic. Depends a little on what the national origin of, of within the Latino population. To some degree, I think that the, the the danger for the for the Republican Party under Trump is that they're kind of losing the more highly educated white voters. The Trump base is Southern parts of the Midwest, parts of the the sort of the non-coast West, and much more white. You know, very very white and and to some extent, more rural and more low income. And those are kind of fixed positions, so we don't see the polls moving around. We have all hells breaking loose in our country, all kinds of issues, and the polls have been steady, steady, steady. There, there just aren't that many people who don't really know what they think about the Democrats and Republicans at
0: this point. <laughs>
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
2: We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have
1: no choice.
0: Build that wall, 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 build that wall,
2: build that war. How dangerous is it for the immediate future of America that we have one party which is almost uniformly white, another party which is much more diverse? How dangerous is it for America that regardless of what the news is, people say the Trump base is, let's say, in the low 30s of a percentage. But the people who are still prepared to vote Republican, regardless of whatever the current incumbent of the White House does, is at least another 10 plus percent of that. So Trump, any worst projection now, is looking at maybe 42, low 40s percent of the vote. How dangerous is it that, specifically with these street protests, that there is no visible leadership? Is this a triumph of crowdsourcing of issues? Or is this a worry in that the issues that people are agitating for probably won't get the legislative push that they need because there is nobody to, one person or a leadership to articulate them? And I've I've conflated two things there, and I, I know that I have, but I can see that there is an innate pressure in the American political system, and I worry about it much more than I think maybe if I'd have been alive and cognizant in the mid to late 60s, I'd have worried about America then, because the the line of progress seemed to be much more clearer then. You had the Voting Rights Act. You you had a leader with Martin Luther King and the other civil rights leaders who could really articulate a grievance and then apply political pr- pressure to those systems. So um, I'll ask you two really distinct questions. How dangerous is it that America's polarization can be seen in its ethnic mix of its major political parties and where does this i would say righteous anger for change for justice to do with the systematic treatment of people of color specifically black people where does that go if there is no national leadership specifically um, articulating that uh, with all these unprecedented protests
1: those are two wonderful questions let me let me uh take a shot at the first one so it doesn't worry me that we are a crazy mixed up you know ethnically diverse you know immigrants from all over the place everybody's has parents or grandparents from some some place if they're not themselves immigrants we that's who we are that's who we are yes the republican party had a good chance of making itself a more multi-ethnic party with a with making a serious bid for latino voters um the george w bush went after uh latino voters carl rove who i don't think is particularly a particularly champion of inclusion for entirely for electoral reasons thought that was really the way that the, the republican party had to go Donald Trump started his campaign saying that you know Mexicans are rapists and criminals. So so much for that. You know he sort of tore up that playbook right right at the outset. outset. Um, it's still remarkable that there is quite a bit of Latino support. Not by any means majority, but there is quite a bit of Latino support for for Trump. And that's uh, I think that has to do with social conservatism and abortion and issues like that. Um, but back to your question, it doesn't worry me that we are sort of sorting ourselves ethnically, what worries me? So if I weren't wearing glasses, you could see the dark circles under my eyes. What keeps me up at night is the um, the kind of militarization of some of this. You know, the um, the fact that we have people who are armed and who live a kind of celebration of the individual right to bear arms and are armed to the teeth and are encouraged to be so, um, are being encouraged by the high political leadership of the Republican Party in the Trump campaign to, um, to act on, on violent instincts. Uh, you know, it's, that scares me, that it scares me that we've had really political assassinations recently, I mean, of, of civilians, but um, that has happened. So it isn't all police killings of protesters or just people, it's also civilian violence which is being encouraged by political leaders in a very irresponsible way. Come November, we get some kind of blurry result to the election, which we've been encouraged to think of it as a blurry result Right, you know, for months now because the president goes around saying that you know, it's going to be fraudulent. That level of citizen-civilian violence could really ramp up. That scares me a lot. Now, on your other question about the leadership of, um, so for example, you pointed out, and I think it's a very astute observation, that like Black Lives Matter is a pretty decentralized group and has local leaders and activists in many, many parts of the country um, But you couldn't point to, I mean, and there are you know, really exciting, dynamic leaders, national leaders who have a profile, but you wouldn't be able to point to a kind of Martin Luther King person who is clearly a kind of national leader of the movement. Now, does that mean that the demands of the movement will not make their way into legislation? First of all, I'm a really irritatingly optimistic person by nature, so you should take whatever I say here with a grain of salt. But I do see some good things happening. So Black Lives Matter has been visibly active since what, around 2013, 2014, formulating concrete demands of reform of police departments. And um, those demands are very much, you know, the members of Congress, uh, mayors, city leaders are very aware of those demands and the kind of protests that are putting pressure on um on you know on it for change are you know are are backed up by those very concrete demands some of some of them are probably not going to happen i mean the you know defund the police slogan i think is a slogan that scares a lot of people off but it really although it has some very good ideas behind it for example take resources that go to police departments when they, do, when they you know, are, are asked to be involved in, in, in psychiatric matters, move them over to a, a more a beefed up sort of mental health, public mental health system, that's a great idea. Um, but there are other ideas that have to do with police accountability that are very much on the table. Let me just mention, so just uh, yesterday, Brianna Taylor's family, so this is the young woman who was killed in her own apartment by police who had a no-knock warrant, came through the doors, and then her boyfriend thought they were under attack and pulled out his gun and, and took a shot. The police came in with their guns blazing. And then one of their the police officers went to the parking lot and just started shooting at the, her apartment from outside completely recklessly and even shot bullets into neighboring apartments. So. Th- th- that's in, in Louisville, Tennessee, that became a major movement. And she, her family just was awarded a $12 million award. But along with that came acceptance of some demands. For example, actually, they've already carried out the end of warrantless searches, um, various things having to do with police accountability. So I do think it's a very smart movement, um, a lot of dynamic sort of street imagery and, and protest theater, and I mean that in a good sense, but also very savvy political agenda. I'm optimistic. Now, if President Trump wins re-election, forget about that optimism, but...
2: I'm an optimistic person by nature, too. The glass is always half full as far as I'm concerned, and, um, but you make a really interesting point about uh, defund the police, because I've had to explain this to people numerous times. And I make exactly your point, or at least a point very similar. And it is that I live part of the year in uh, the Bay Area. Mm. I adore the Bay Area. It has a shocking homeless problem. Shocking. On no level should that level of homelessness be tolerated by any citizen of the Bay Area. It shows you're not a failure of that type of capitalism to see 10,000 people homeless at any one point in the city of San Francisco. Shocking number. If there is any level of altercation or if there is somebody sleeping on the street, the agency that's called first is the police. They should not be called. They should not be called. And there is a portion of that San Francisco police budget. I don't know what it is. Let's say for argument's sake, it's 1%. I'm just making up a figure. Which in effect where it's been allocated to deal with the homeless, is there to deal with the police moving people on, putting petrol in those cars to get the police officers there, etc., etc., and their time to do this. What defund the police means is exactly what you said. And exactly what I say is you take that example, or if there is, let's say, a domestic disturbance, is it right and proper that a policeman comes waving a gun to that disturbance? I would say probably not. It depends on the level of the disturbance, admittedly. But I would say that when I listen to right wing talk show hosts, they kind of get off with saying that defund the police means you hate the police as an institution and that you want some kind of anarchist circa Catalonia 1937 solution where everyone's looking out for themselves, which is not at all it. So I do believe that as wonderful as having great local activists actually are and it speaks to something of the age that we have, that there is this decentralised leadership of Black Lives Matter, but there is something to be said for somebody which people can pinpoint and say, this person speaks for the movement, for no other reason than the voices against Black Lives Matter are national. They're obviously local as well, but there are politicians who have a national standing who can articulate, I would say badly, but they're articulating a position against it of which it's very easy to say defund the police means what are we going to do? Get rid of the police? Which is not at all really what defund the police means. I know we're really pushed for time and that was more of a statement as opposed to a question I I was throwing at you. Not even more so, it was. (laughs) so.
1: Jump in on it. It, it yeah. starts a thought. Um, I I really agree with you. One of the another of these terrible cases we've had recently is that of uh, Daniel Prude in Rochester, New York, who um, was uh, uh, visiting his brother, who was actually sent by his mother from here in Chicago out to these are you know grown brothers to his brother because he was having, you know, some serious psychological difficulties. He, he moved in with his brother and in the moment of a terrible crisis where he actually left the house and his brother was very fearful for his welfare, the, his brother called the police. And um, months later, we found out that uh, that Daniel Prue never came back and, and he, it ended up it ended up being the case, although we didn't know this for a long time, that he was basically killed by the police who didn't know the first thing about how to handle a, you know, really manage a psychiatric uh, situation. And the most heartbreaking thing, I think, be in a, you know, besides the George Floyd murder for me was hearing an interview with his brother who cannot forgive himself for having called the police. He cannot yeah. forgive himself. He blames himself for his brother. Yeah. And it doesn't matter that people say to him, look, that's what we do in this country. When, you know, our brother takes off his clothes and runs out into the winter and you're afraid he's gonna run in front of a train, you call the police, but that shouldn't be. They're not equipped. Add to that, that they're white police so frequently and they're, you know, dealing with, with minority populations with people of color in those communities. And, oh boy, you know, the, it's it's just a recipe for disaster. So I'm quite, I'm not sure about the slogan. I think defund the police gives the wrong idea to a lot of folks. But I am absolutely sure that some parts of what the police functions are need to be carved up and sent elsewhere. And if that means also sending resources elsewhere, then so be it.
2: the biggest disincentive for people not to protest as a student of history these protests all seem to happen in the summer you know (laughs) so (laughs) french revolution it's a long hot summer you know obviously the weather is a large determinant as to when protests take place but what are the other kind of disincentives other than you not agreeing with the protesters it's not as if all african americans have been out on the street. It's not as if all latte-drinking liberals are all out on the street. So what are some of the classic disincentives for people who, let's say, broadly agree with the aims of protesters, not actually to to be active in uh, an urban civil protest?
1: Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, I would say that there are there are, there are the occasional winter protests. If you think back to 2013 through 2014, that winter, that was the winter of the Euromaidan protests in, in Ukraine. But you saw those pictures and you thought,
2: oh, my goodness, those people are,
1: they must really care. They're out in terrible weather. Yeah, but
2: they're Ukrainians. They, sort of, yes, exactly. they, they can deal That's with the cold over for- there. <laughs>
1: Exactly. You and I wouldn't do that, right? Um, so I, um, I'll, I'll plug a book that a colleague and I recently published, published last year called Why Bother? Rethinking Participation in Elections and Protests. And we, um, we sort of made a basic kind of conceptual distinction between costs of participation um, and what we call costs of abstention. So what are costs of participation? So things that make it, when they when they increase, you're less likely to turn out. So. Um, it's time consuming, it could be dangerous, there could be, there could be cops who, you know, who uh, get involved, there could be, you know, anarchists, there could be, uh, you know, other kind of extremists who get you in trouble, um, It it's, uh, you know, it's called outside, it, those are the kinds of, the, or, or just kind of knowing where to go and, and whom to go with, it turns out that a big factor is people are much more likely to, to attend if they've got, if they're part of a network that's attending, so kind of protest participation and voting for that matter as well are kind of contagious, uh, I wouldn't say diseases, they're contagious good behaviors. So those things play a big role. So another thing to mention is age. So protests are are the only form of political participation where young people tend to outnumber older people. Um, And that probably has to do with a kind of risk tolerance. Um, Younger people are less likely to weigh the risk to go through that list that I just went through. then what we call cost of abstention. So these are, these are things that are, if you don't go out, you're gonna bear these costs. And those include things like the internal friction of knowing that you should be out there. You care a lot, you're really angry, um, but you're not, you're hesitant to do it. They include the sort of social pressure and social shaming. And just caring a lot about the outcome you know if i care a lot about living in a society in which this sort of george floyd murders just don't happen anymore i'm much more likely to to get involved i mean that you know um so that's something that will i will weigh against the other things that are keeping that are keeping me from from joining now what we we saw a really interesting demonstration of this whole dynamic with. That from that 2019 to 2020. As I mentioned before, 2019 was the year of the protests. It was incredible. Around the world, there was just so many protests. Then comes the pandemic, and that all closes down. Even Hong Kong kind of goes silent for for a period. Um, and then in this country, and you, I'm sure you observed this, Memorial Day weekend, George Floyd is killed, and... All of a sudden, those costs of abstention just shoot up and people are out on the streets, pandemic or no pandemic. If the cause, if the sense of injustice, if the desire for change, if the social pressure, social involvement are sufficient, they'll overcome very, very major, major obstacles to, to getting involved. Now, you know, the biggest protests, even the ones that we've been mentioning, Ukraine, for example they rarely get more than 10% of the local population involved. So um, whereas if you had an election and only 10% of people uh, turned out, you'd, that would be a, a failure of an election. So, so voting is something that people are encouraged to do. Maybe not all people are so encouraged to do. Maybe in this country, as you know, we tend to make it difficult to do it. But still, the pressure to be involved is that much more, that much greater. Also, people tend, if you, if you start voting when you're young, you tend to keep voting over the, the, source of your, the course of your lifetime.
2: It's time to wipe things down. Quick fire round. Should we take money out of campaigning? From a, from a British perspective, it's obscene the amount of money spent on American elections. It seems to me that if you can afford to put money into a political campaign, your view is more valid than, than others that can't. Which then, I think, goes somewhat ties back to really what we're talking about. To see the political apparatus as very different from street protests, because generally the people who are protesting on the street are not big campaign donors. They might be able to put five dollars here, ten dollars there, uh, but they're not doing thousands. You know, um, Bloomberg was not on a march for Black Lives Matters who's just given, was it $100 million for the Democratic Party to campaign just in Florida alone. Is the amount of money in the American political system, is it dangerous to democracy viewed from the lens of civil protest,
1: Very much so. Very much so. You know, British politics, as we all know, is no simple thing. There's the good, the bad and the ugly over there as well. But if I could steal something from you folks and bring it over here it would be uh the regulation of campaign finance which goes back to the 19th century and looks fantastic to us and you know serious regulation that really that really counts and it's incorporated into the way that campaigns and and parties think about things obscene amounts of money um that as you know the situation in this country has become much worse since the citizens united decision which basically took a lot of the caps off um, off the, the, the limitations of contributions now there's money and there's money many candidates so Barack Obama for example raised enormous amounts of money from very small donations, as did Bernie Sanders so you know the, the fact that we have to spend so much money on campaigns is not a good thing, but the real problem is the enormous Billionaires and corporations that can spend enormous amounts indirectly through PACs, directly on campaigns. They can bundle contributions to get around individual limits um, and directly influence the course of, of campaigns and, and, and what politicians will do and what they won't do. And the perfect example right now is um, the position of, uh, of the incumbent president on climate change. Ever since the, the Woodward tape came out, showing that he really knew that the pandemic was going to be bad, we have to wonder when he says that climate change is a hoax. Now we think, well, maybe he really does understand the science, but he's just not going to say it publicly. He has to—he has to pander to the to the, the Republican Party, has to pander to the Koch brothers and to other fossil fuel interests and so they they have to be on board with a with a a kind of a suicidal kind of policy for for the planet so um absolutely a a danger to to democracy completely unfair what you said is exactly right why we would think it would it's fair to let some people have enormous influence over the political process just because they happen to have a lot of money doesn't make any sense at all i don't think there's a serious political theorist on the on the planet who would argue in favor of that So absolutely a danger and something that we we wish we could fix, along with a lot of things having to do with with election administration. We are very far behind.
2: One of the whole points of this show is to compare and contrast uh, US and UK politics and our political norms. So it fills my heart with much joy, Susan Stokes, Professor Susan Stokes, that you admit that my country, the country of my birth, is far superior Uh, to yours at least in one regard uh, (laughs) listen when it comes down to uh, campaign finance Uh, Susan Stokes thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic thank you for being such a great sport and thank you for explaining um, how modern protests are different uh, from the protests of old how they have similarities and maybe pointing out some of the flaws in the American uh, current political system thank you
1: well, it's my great pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Just before you absolutely go, because generally when people come on and do podcasts or do shows, they've got something to hawk. So I, I believe you have a book or two.
1: Can I show you here? This is the, uh, do I have it here? Yes, the book that I've just mentioned is um, called Why Bother? And the subtitle is Rethinking uh, Participation in Elections and Protests. And it was published in 2019 by uh, Cambridge University Press, and uh, it's short and it's written so that it, we tried to make it engaging for a, 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 a you know broad audience, it's not just written, I love Sorry, mate, you, you couldn't get
2: an American publisher to do it, the censorship in America, you had to come over to a good British <laughs> publisher to get your book out, I
1: there. love it, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> brilliant so the book is called why why bother uh go get it from um dare i say the the big bookshop in the sky or even better try and find it at a a local bookshop but if you can't then do the big bookshop in the sky susan stokes professor susan stokes again thank you for coming on to mid-atlantic
1: thank you so much really a pleasure